0: This is the nine six six, episode ninety
1: two. Hello, Richard. Hey, Lucian. Awesome. We're just laughing about how we, how much we like doing this. <laughs> should we admit it? Should we admit it? it I mean, it, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we like just sort of wallow in how hard it is, which it is, and it takes so much time, and it, it, you know the production is a fair, the booking is a pain in the butt, prep takes forever. It really sucks this job.
0: No one wants to hear about that, Um, Richard. (laughs) They only want to hear about how easy this is. It's true. But but the reason why we're laughing is because Richard referred to this as work earlier today. And I was like, work, (laughs) Um, this is a lot of fun. And yes, it it takes a lot of work. But um, we are really happy with uh, everybody listening and watching us. Richard, we are back. Um, We took last week off We did not intend to do that, um, but We were both traveling, we were actually both on islands, very far apart from each other, and realized how hard it is to travel with this equipment and other logistical challenges. So, (laughs) um, but we did really enjoy uh, hearing from everybody. Um, We've got a couple people that were like, hey, are you guys uh, alive? Because your episode was, yeah, um, via Instagram. Hey, when are you guys back? Uh, Episode 92 this week, right? And I was like, that's, that's "Ah." cool. Yep, so.
1: I feel, I feel feel, uh, validated.
0: You know, it's nice hearing from everybody. It really is. Um, We have a great one. Richard, this week, we talk about Saudi Arabian sports all the time on this podcast. And uh, I just did this, Richard, before we jumped on. If you sort Google News, search for the word Saudi, previous six months, it's like half the stories are something about sports in Saudi Arabia. So this week, we've got an expert coming on with us in the field of sports and the geopolitical economy, Professor Simon Chadwick. We're going to talk about the full Sunday morning buffet of topics, golf, tennis, football, soccer, the business of sports globally, even down to the hyper-local level here of D.C. sports, Richard. So just so fun. Uh, to, terrific guest coming up here shortly. It's just a great conversation.
1: Uh, sweet spot, and topically the sweet spot. And and you know, he's like an OG. You know, sports watching is a recent term, but in terms of the geopolitics and economy of sport, he's been doing it for decades and he knows it inside out. This was a, this was awesome. Mm -hmm. It's reminded me a little bit of James Golson, Uh, you know, the um, senior commercial officer where just say, would you like to do it? He said, yes. And then we, you know, without very little, very little, you know, prep or priming, he gets on and he just knocks it out of the park. I mean, you know, uh, Professor Chadwick said, yeah, I'll do it. And then he comes on. He's just outstanding.
0: Yep. One of those press play guests, Richard, yes. where you can just yes. let him rock and roll and it's going to be fantastic and it is fantastic. I'm glad you mentioned previous guests, Richard. We will be discussing shortly an op-ed in Newsweek from a former 966 guest on the show, David Rundell, about Saudi Arabia's role in 9-11 and some uh, clearing out some misunderstandings regarding that. We'll also be talking a little bit about Neom. We're going to get to Yella after our conversation with Professor Simon. So just a lot of good stuff this week. Richard, we're rejuvenated here back. Um yes. before we get started, again, thanks for everybody that's listening and, and viewing this and all the feedback coming in. We see everything that comes in. Uh just terrific. Last week, Richard, I guess last episode, our conversation with Dr. Muhammad al-Sheikh really broke the internet for us. Oh my goodness. Um, kind of unbelievable. Uh this con- I mean, there's so many, so much feedback on LinkedIn, just everywhere. But um, this one from YouTube, Rashid Mahmoud 6166, although I'm an employee of Al-Salem Johnson Controls, getting to know these interesting and impressive facts and figures about his biography through this channel, wishing for more prosperity under his leadership. A lot of things like that, people that got to know the CEO via this interview. So that was cool. Really, really a great conversation.
1: Like you say, it did break, it, bro- it broke all our numbers records. And I think that's fascinating. And I said validated earlier, but I think it's pretty cool that we had a CEO of a Saudi company come on the show. Mm-hmm. He was terrific. And we know Muhammad. He's very personable, bright, dynamic, but people loved it. I mean, they found it so interesting. And, you know, and that's sort of our premise. Look, this is a guy you might not know, but boy, is it interesting to talk to him
0: yeah and just an amazing company and an amazing space over there air conditioning very popular as we joked with him about <laughs> got this one from user at iab underscore 19 on instagram waiting for the next episode big up 966 that big was a reminder that i was that i was not we were not doing it last week so i felt a little felt a little guilty, guilty so we're back uh richard enough yeah, for me we'll, we'll take all you. your
1: accolades and take a take a week off yeah <laughs> thank you so much for that
0: i'm out <laughs> Uh, Richard, what's your one big thing this week?
1: Okay, this is not... So I, all right, so I was debating about a, a number of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You mentioned David Rundell. David Rundell is author of Vision Mirage Saudi Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. An outstanding book. If you really want to get an understanding of modern-day Saudi Arabia, how it, we, we ended up with Vision 2030, who the main players are, and that sort of thing, it's a terrific book, recommended 100%. He and Ambassador Michael Goffeller, who's a former uh, political advisor of the U.S. Central uh, Command, also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote an article in Newsweek. I recommend it to you. It's called Saudi Arabia's True Role in 9-11. Now, <clears throat> the reason I picked this is because uh, we follow, live, we spot a lot of sports. Basically, any almost any conversation where the Saudis are involved, something comes up. Jamal Khashoggi, of course, um, 9-11. For you know, 20 plus years now, it's 9/11, and it's very hard to have a conversation because this is a very serious event. We, you know, almost 3,000 Americans died. You have uh, a number of 9/11 survivor groups; they feel are very close to heart. People lost family, so you, you don't really want to have a conversation. But it always um, frustrated me a little bit in that it, in in their eyes, the Saudi government was part of this. And uh, my take on it is the Saudi government was not part of this. And they're culpable of, 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 a, of a number of things. But in terms of, you know, Saudi government involvement with these attacks, I don't believe there was any. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> so in this article that Rundown and Gefella wrote for Newsweek, they run through a number of arguments, very dispassionate, well well-reasoned, logical. And I just wanted to share them with you. So this is going to take a little bit of time, but please bear with me. I broke it up into the sections they sort of had. this This is not you know exactly sequentially like they had it, but this is how I I, I read it. So started with investigation conclusions. All right, so in 2004, the bipartisan 911 Commission report concluded that there was no evidence linking the Saudi government or its senior officials to the attacks. 2016, 28 classified pages of the report were released that did not alter that conclusion. 2021, the FBI released its own previously classified reports on the matter, reaching the same conclusion. All right. So that's one section, sort of evidentiary. Um, Another section that they did was on Osama bin Laden. And and again, I'm offering this because I think it's useful background if you haven't really looked at it closely. So, yes, Osama bin Laden was al-Qaeda's frontman and financier. He fought against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. As we know, the the Mujahideen effort in in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union was heavily backed by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and many of our allies. He returned to Saudi Arabia in 1989 and began criticizing the government for being insufficiently Islamic. He left Saudi Arabia in 1991. In 1994, King Fahad, then king of Saudi Arabia, stripped him of his Saudi citizenship and froze his financial assets, making it clear that he was now regarded as an enemy of the Saudi state. This is 1994. Uh, So subsequently, the Saudi government sought unsuccessfully to extradite him first from Sudan and later from Afghanistan. Uh, The final report of the 9-11 Commission stated, quote, Saudi government officials at the highest level work closely with top U.S. officials to solve the bin Laden problem, thematically, unquote. All right, so between, we've referenced this on the show, between 2003 and 2007, al-Qaeda, which obviously attacked the U.S. in, in 2001, began an extremely violent terrorist campaign within Saudi Arabia, explicitly intended to overthrow the government al-qaeda terrorists attacked housing compounds government offices oil facilities killed more than 100 saudi police officers i mean it seemed like an endless series of shootouts if you remember the time all right so another section i'll call it al-qaeda membership what do we always hear 15 out of 19 right um saudi's never made up the majority of al-qaeda's leadership or membership Uh, Below uh, below Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda's leadership was primarily Egyptian. Al-Qaeda's foot soldiers came from across the Muslim world, with North Africans, Indonesians, Pakistanis contributing far more than Saudis. Saudis were used to carry out the 9-11 attacks primarily, and this is according to Gefeller and, and Rundell, primarily because it was far easier for them to obtain visas to the United States than it was for their Egyptian or Pakistani colleagues. I would add to this, they did not say this, this is me. It was a strategic masterstroke on the part of Osama bin Laden to load up this team with Saudis. And I, I, the intent was very specifically to divide the US and Saudi Arabia, to undermine that relationship and to get a reaction that was significant. He was, you know, this, he, he was very successful in doing this. Um, so let's talk about the second, another section, Al Qaeda ideology. So Al-Qaeda's principal ideologue was the Egyptian Ayman he, he who essentially was a creature of the Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood. Um, Zawahiri participated in the assassination of uh, Egyptian President uh, Anwar Sadat, openly called for overthrow of Arab monarchies, and obviously Saudi Arabia is an Arab monarchy, and um, and was at odds with the Saudi religious establishment in any number of ways, not only because they supported the Saudi monarchy, but also, uh, as we see later, the, the Saudi religious established really did not like suicide bombing. This is against their religion. Um so they didn't like terrorism in general, but suicide bombing was a particular no-go for them. So Rundell and Gaffello finally get to policy and logic. They say Saudi Arabia is a relatively weak nation militarily with a lot of wealth to protect. It values stability, has long opposed anything that unsettles the Middle East, including Soviet Union's Marxism. This was one of a, a strong tie that, that bound the US and Saudi Arabia for many decades was uh, you know, that because Soviet Union and Marxism was godless, Saudis did not like that. Nasser's Arab nationalism, again, anti monarchical. Khomeini's revolution, again, you know, the the revolution was specifically targeting Saudi Arabia and Sunni and all Sunni regimes. Uh, And finally, bin Laden's jihad. Uh, It has, Saudi Arabia has depended on security commitments made by numerous American presidents, starting with Harry Truman. It would make very little sense. For Saudi Arabia to cooperate with its sworn enemy, Al Qaeda, to launch an attack on its most extreme, most important strategic partner. That's their close. And they say, which I think was true for all of us, should new evidence come forward after 22 years, we're open to it. But there's nothing to this point evidentiary uh, uh, in terms of motive. That would suggest the Saudi government supported this or was involved with this in any way. So, and I want to close here. Um, so when somebody says 9, 11 15 out of 19, to me, I think they're uh they're it's it's I don't think it's an accurate portrayal of Saudi government involvement. What the Saudis are culpable of um and mm-hmm. it is essentially an extended period of misguided support of groups and individuals who promoted religious extremism. And uh, it, there's an interesting comment in, um, in Rundown like a fellow's article, and it says, quote, Saudi Islam is a long tradition of puritanical intolerance, which has most often been directed against the religious practice of other Muslims, unquote, Muslims, unquote. So in the post-79 Iranian revolution era, saudi arabia moved as we know moved sharply to the right became much more conservative really handed over much of its in the the key control of schools and other ministries to the clerical establishment and uh, what you see was saw was textbooks that promoted anti-shia anti-jew and you know non-muslim sentiment along with other intolerant themes you also saw again under the rationale that we have to count counter um Iran's expansionism and their efforts to subvert Sunni Arabs neighbors so you also saw significant funds sent abroad to madrasa's sunni affiliated associations welfare groups all manner of charities that were poorly vetted and not supervised or monitored uh, uh, and too much of this money as we know went to extremist groups pursuing extremist activities so you know, so again, from the Saudi point of view, they were responding to what they thought was a, a real threat from uh Shia Iran. Uh so anyway, to go back to the being, well, I don't I don't believe a Saudi government was involved in 9 11 attacks. The rise of Al Qaeda and other Sunni extremist groups, however, was boosted by Saudi Arabia's post-1979 financial largesse and supportive and more conservative Sunni Islam. They're disconnected. But you can argue there was, you know, there was a there was a, a ferment in a culture out there that the Saudis inadvertently or negligently fed, um, and it wasn't until the blowback of terrorism in that thousand three two thousand seven period, where you had, you know, terrorism and within Saudi Arabia, that they really sort of fully understand the extent of their mistakes. So, and as we know, to close, you know, one of the things the Saudis have done really well is close up the, the, the you know loopholes and charitable giving controls, really moderate the Islamic messaging, clean up their textbooks. These have all improved considerably since. And they understand why it matters. But again, you know I, I don't want I want I want to sort of address the you know 15 out of 19 argument mm-hmm. about government involvement, but I also don't want to uh, exonerate Saudi Arabia from some of the, the the policies it had in the post-79 era. You know, all the way through the early aughts. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, there it is, you know, back to the beginning. It's a really interesting article, Newsweek, uh, David Rundell, Michael Gofeller, I, I recommend it to you.
0: This is an important piece of journalism because it's really a statement of facts that, you know, if you're on one side of this thing and you hear people say 15 of the 19 terrorists uh, on 9-11 were Saudi, it's just really hard to say, well, you know, it's just really hard to come back to that. This is the comeback. This is the statement of fact. Saying, "Look, like here's the reality." Most of these of the members of Al Qaeda were not terrorists from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia as a state had a war against Al Qaeda and AQAP, Al Qaeda in the American Peninsula. You talked about the clampdown on charity and terrorism financing in 2019. Actually, the embassy released a stat sheet of every single thing that they've done since then. Since then, excuse me. The terrorists that brought down those planes on 9-11 and their leadership considered the government of Saudi Arabia one of their chief enemies, possibly even more than the United States, because it had sided with the United States. So I think this is an important piece of journalism. And Richard, we talked a a little bit about it before we started recording. It's really remarkable just reading it saying, okay, wait. Um, you know, but this is still the number one thing that comes up in the US and kind of around the world when we talk about Saudi Arabia's influence in sport and, you know, Saudi money into different sports and really just anything. It's this and Jamal Khashoggi. And this reminds me, this piece reminds me of the feeling or the sort of epiphany that I had when I read um, Ali Shahabi's piece on the new Saudi Arabia, which you and I talked about offline. And we've had a lot of people comment online suggesting we discuss it. But I mean, it's a similar thing where... He's talking about the new foreign policy of Saudi Arabia, but the second paragraph is about Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi realizing that we can't talk about these other things until we talk about this and we have the discussion centered on Jamal Khashoggi and 9/11, so that we are on the same plane talking about these facts. And you know, he says this Khashoggi tra- tragedy is five years old, gruesome murder. Um, you know, uh, the the Saudi official position expressed multiple times that this crime was a horrible aberration never to be repeated. And one data point, however shocking it may be, does not make for a trend line. He also then goes to discuss human rights standards and these other things going on in Saudi Arabia that are the things that, you know, we talk about and then says, hey, here, here are all the ways that Saudi Arabia is changing for the better in in an alignment with U.S. interests. So, um, I mean, this this is it's a little bit of a rambling response the piece because it is one of those things where it's like we need to we need to have a discussion about this and we need to talk about 9-11 and these facts about saudi arabia because just to say that you know 15 to the 19 hijackers uh, were saudi is sort of it's unfair to, to now 22 years later to say that well nothing you can do is right because of this so it's not excusing anything and, and again like the preamble of this was a a horrible event it did did change the world but you know the United States didn't invade Saudi Arabia uh after 9 11. like so to be like well Saudi Arabia did this did 9 11 is unfair to say in my opinion so complex issue you know just uh difficult subject but a great piece Richard and a great one big thing
1: thank you and you make a good point I mean it, it, it you know not only is it inaccurate in, in 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 the opinion of gefeller and rundell and me uh and, me. and you uh, us to, to to pin this on the saudi government uh unfortunately that that mantra 19 freezes everything in time and, yes. it, and like as you as you reference in the shahabi piece it you know it it uh it's a tremendous obstacle to moving forward to something that's changed and maybe something that's better
0: Imagine if the United States was only known by its two worst things that happened. What would that be?
1: Well, it's fascinating. There's the, and now we digress. <laughs> now we digress. Now Welcome now to something. the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome
0: to the 966 match list. We will be deeping <laughs> no, deep diving into this.
1: You know, James Dorsey writes a lot on the piece, but their barometer come out, came out, which is considered the most widely and most, most the most, uh, the thorough sort of political opinion survey of the region, the Arab and Middle East. And, and a, a lot of the things, that obviously, it's it's um, attitudes towards the U.S. And so much of what's going on in, in terms of uh, uh, decline in perceptions about the U.S. is credibility. And, you know, the, the the terrible events of 9-11 led to some very poor choices in terms of, of foreign policy. Um, you know, the global war on terrorism, while experts and professionals will tell you there are real terrorist threats, which I do not deny or, or question. You know, the global war on tele- terrorism was was a tremendous overshoot that got us into some real uh, bad situations, situations that that I think we now regret in many ways and, and and are hurting us in our credibility. Situations like Guantanamo, like Abu Ghraib, like so many things that, that uh, were a departure- from what we preached and what we preach and we have a credibility deficit in the middle east uh people think we're hypocritical people think we don't abide by you know what we you know what we say in terms of liberal democracy and about human rights and any number rule of law any number of things they think we're hypocritical we think we're inconsistent a lot of this came about in the aftermath of 9/11 and this is why i say osama bin laden who has been, you know, killed, justifiably so, and, you know, is a terrorist through and through and can, you know, can't be committed anyway. But as a strategist, he was mightily successful. You know, as someone who hated the U.S., hated Saudi Arabia, uh, wanted to bring the, each down, um, you know, the, the aftermath of, of 9-11 played out a lot like he would have hoped. Yeah. I don't know I don't know how that's going to be taken. I consider that sort of an objective dispassionate assessment. It's not that I'm endorsing it. I'm just saying it was extremely, you know, the overreaction, the reaction of the US led to a lot of the things and that is alienation from the region, decline of US influence that Osama bin Laden really wanted to see.
0: Mm-hmm. And what would he want? He would want You know, the beginnings of this, he would want the Arab world to really, you know, distrust us. And like you said, credibility gap, that's what he would want. He would want the US to continue on with a uh, incorrect and wrong stereotype in order to divide us. So, I I mean, you know, that's not good. Richard, I'm glad you used uh, credibility. Deficit, because that's so interesting the way you put that. That's becoming
1: expensive for the
0: United States as other people
1: just fill it in. Beautiful point. You know, our brand equity is significantly diminished. I want to throw in another thing is because we created a a sort of a rampant Islamophobia in the U.S., which, again, you know, uh, distanced the region and put them off. Um, So, yeah, you know, so many bad outcomes from that horrible event. Um, The best you can do is try and shine a light on it and try and do better. And um, so there you go.
0: Yep. Richard, my one big thing, a little bit lighter here. We're going and we're going to, we're going <laughs> to. Yes,
1: thank
0: goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, that was a really important topic, but um, I'm going to try to keep this tight because there's so much going on with NEOM these days. And if we don't like mention it or talk about it now, then we will have missed like five big stories over the last 10 days. Mm-hmm. and another 5 in the next 10 days and so we'll end up being way behind on it. The overarching theme here Richard uh, for this one big thing is not if but when I think it's crystallizing that Neon is happening and we've talked about this a lot on the 966. So there's just a lot to update you guys with and and a lot of you know some or not all or some know all but it's worth sort of synthesizing it here. So his Royal Highness uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman made a documentary appearance uh, for a Discovery Channel program, um, and what I'd like to do, Richard, is drop some of his comments here because it's worth listening to yourself, and then we can talk about it. So,
2: here it is. One take one. The population gonna jump in Saudi Arabia from today thirty three million in twenty thirty something between fifty to fifty five million. So in twenty thirty we're gonna reach the full capacity of the existing infrastructure of Saudi Arabia. That's raised a very important question that we need to create a new city. They say in a lot of projects that happen in Saudi Arabia, can be done. This is very ambitious. They can keep saying that and we can keep proving them wrong. So since we have empty place and we want to have a place for 10 million people, then let's think from scratch. So we talk about a lot of ideas. Why can't we build a circle and we start to connect it with movement, mobilities, trains, whatever, and then we start to build it slowly till it's completed for 10 million people. We brainstorm, we work with the team, we did a competition with the best designer on the whole planet. All of them, they provide us cities based on the existing methods, but in, with the better solutions. Except one, adopt that idea and he said, let's turn it from a circle to a line. Northwest of Saudi Arabia, untouched, almost empty. It have mix of topography, mountains, valleys, oases, dunes, beaches, islands, corals, from skiing till diving. That's the place. When he presented the line and turned from circle to a line, it was the width of it, it's almost two kilos. My problem that the... Infrastructure idea is good, but when you get in it with a two kilo of width, you don't feel it. I told the team, how about if we take that two kilo and we flip it to two towers to the whole line? Doesn't that gonna work? It's gonna be massive. You know, any new city, have to be top down. All the cities that we have today exi- existing, it's based in all cities. Problem solution problem solution. So the existing model of cities, it's based on problem and solution because it's being fixed all the time. But if it's top down, then you can design something like this. Engineering and designers are not enough without art. Don't want to create a city without having the whole city as a piece of art. You have the models now. We work on it. it sounds it's very doable, and the ideas is like amazing. So it's it's massive. It's huge. I I, I wish that I can explain it. Uh, in a smaller uh, way, but it's project making money. It's project absorbing the demand that we assumed in Saudi uh, uh, Arabia, and it's something that creates the new way of uh, building city, and new way of living. All cities based in problem and solution, and car is solution for a problem. I have a friend who moved to, his American friend who moved to Miami. In Miami, when you get out from your office, you're on vacation immediately you're next to entertainment, culture, sport, retail, so each day it has to be excitement to finish your work and go and enjoy it in New York. So we are competing with Miami in that area. We think about what kind of opportunity we have. So we have the cash, we have the land, we have the stability, we have good infrastructure, we are a G20 country. We want to create the new civilization for Tomorrow, and we need to encourage other nations to keep doing the same things for a better uh, planet. Well, we are bringing all the pieces of puzzle together. I don't know what's the outcome of it. That' gonna be the creativity of the people gonna live from the whole globe in uh, in neon. I can promise you that' gonna be something new and creative. But what is it? It's unknown. We're gonna see.
0: Okay. Richard, um, did a little drop there. Interesting from the crown prince. Uh, but there's, there's sort of a lot to, I mean, there's, we could make a whole episode on, on that, but two points that I want to make, and I really want you to jump in. Uh, I'm going to make this point and the next point, and then just go through two or three things that developed, and then I need you in on this point. So I hope you're, Uh, paying close attention, (laughs) Richard. So first thing, this is small. This interview is in English. So uh, he's spoken in English before publicly, of course, but it's noteworthy to me that this is in English for a man that thinks as quickly and with big ideas like he does to speak in English has got to be, you know, sort of frustrating for him because he thinks so like he's for him to convey his ideas on something so large uh, to speak in a second language has got to be tough so um he uh his english is great and it was great i think for americans whoever hears this and hopefully i mean now our audience will hear it it's interesting like you can there's more personality there now that he communicates more and more in english so i think that is worthwhile so that's thirty thousand feet up and then there's some things in here richard we talked about this off air and then with professor chadwick neom uh competing with miami and i think just making a comparable, like making a comp city to Neom helps people understand what they might expect as it develops. That's common. You know so for example like now i tell people Riyadh is increasingly like dubai so if you've been there then you understand it's not that different Riyadh just has a little bit more culture and personality and authenticity versus dubai <laughs> and, and less <laughs> not my alcohol place. yeah and less alcohol yeah um but uh so i love that he did that because it's i never thought about that but the weather is similar and the vibe of being able to work next to where you're living and and be able to like arrive in a city where if you do some work and you walk outside you're on vacation. I I don't know. I I think that helped. The line exhibit, by the way, we talked about this, Richard. See that in Riyadh as long as it's open, because that was another sort of moment where I realized how serious this was. But just thought that interview was really good, so I'm glad we got to share that. Um, Last week, Richard, Neom and Volocopter, some tech that is uh, especially interesting to to me and you personally, because it would be so sweet (laughs) to fly around in air taxis like this. is uh, they're they're now uh, have done some tests at NEOM, the first test campaign of air taxi flights in the Northwest of Saudi Arabia building on a reputation um, as a leader in technology. That's what they really want NEOM to be. The, it was sort of, uh, I guess it was one week of tests uh, over the whole week. And I, I kind of don't know more about it in terms of like how far they flew or whatever, but man would this technology be amazing if it really took off and this is the type of stuff that neom they've invested in volocopter and are interested in making sort of the showcase of that area um so there was that which is amazing would be its own story uh new satellite images coming out uh recently showing some serious progress at neom we got a taste of this richard when we had jacob mum on the program from bechtel he was talking about yeah i mean we're like we're full on there we're, building that. we're working on the spine, we've got Trojina in the mix, like we are up there building. So if you think Neom is still an idea and not actually happening, think again, cause uh, it's happening. So, uh, and I'll try to drop these in if we have some time, Richard, into the the program here, because you can see sort of how much is going on there. New housing development uh, in Neom, big deal. Uh, SAR 21 billion. So 21 billion reals about $5.6 billion into, um residential communities, expansion, social infrastructure, all of that into the region. So pretty amazing. And then Richard, slap on your sunscreen. We're going to Cindela Island for the last part of this. A yes. new yacht, yacht partnership announced with BWA Yachting to promote Cindela as a luxury destination. That's a kind of amazing. I didn't see, like, you know, I don't know anything about BWA Yachting, but it sounds truly, I mean, that's on brand for what they're building there. Um, you also had SRMG signing a deal with Cindela to, uh, create some media and creative industries there. It doesn't seem like that type of place necessarily. It seems like a pure luxury resort, but that'll be interesting to see what's happening there. So anyway, oh, and uh, you could see more about the golf course on Sindla Island, which also looks awesome. So nice. That's my one big thing. Welcome into my brain. That's it.
1: It's flying, you know, flying helicopters, electric helicopters. Yeah. Yachts, <laughs> golf we were both as you said we were both out of town last week and the pace of the pace of activity the pace of announcements the pace of accomplishments place of progress is ridiculous i mean you miss a day um and this is especially true in neom and, and so many interesting things like sindala which is really interesting because it's going to be the first out of the, one of the first out of the gates in terms of a viable resort they and red sea gateway but when you look at neom at the beginning you didn't see that coming um you know, they're making progress in many other areas. And I'm I'm fascinated on their hydrogen play. I'm fascinated on a lot of their things. Uh they just keep plugging. And but I just want to remind people, you know, the ambitions are are to the moon and beyond. Uh let me rephrase that. The ambitions are to the stars. If they happen to get to the moon, it's still good. You know, because it's it. You know, these things are so. Uh, you know, it's kind of like like drinking from a fire hose. There's a lot coming real fast. Not all of it's going to hit, but that's not the point. And I think if you listen to that that uh, those remarks by the Crown Prince, you understand his his visions, and his vision. And uh, as we've said before all along, people like us who are paying attention and have tried to be somewhat as as objective as possible, as analytical as possible, still can't keep up with his aspirations because they're enormous.
0: Yeah, and if you think about like, being the crown prince and he like comes out with this plan puts a lot of work into it and you know like has this plan and and he sort of explains the genesis of it and says look we're running out of space in these existing cities we're given this unique chance to build from scratch what are we going to do are we going to do the normal standard thing are we going to try something new and he says we're going to try something new and then he does this or you know saudi arabia does this and then all of a sudden it's all he hears is negativity and disbelief you know and then we're four or five years down the road and he's essentially saying i i heard everybody that said we don't really believe it that doesn't really affect whether or not i'm determined to do it i mean if anything it makes him more determined but it's not like a deterrent he just says well if you don't if you didn't believe me then maybe believe now because look look at it look from the sky the satellite images look what's going in we're gonna do it and uh that's something that we've been talking about richard for two years since we started doing this podcast pretty much year and nine months basically so i mean just just interesting i mean you know like we talk about update your perspectives but i mean like this there was a lot on neon this week so it was was kind of good to touch on it and it's we do talk about it a lot but it's you know nine million people you know in a city that's a straight line is something to talk
1: about well and again if 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 you know that's 107 kilometers if you end up with 40 it's still impressive as hell that's exactly right yep so Um, richard uh shout oh sorry go ahead no please well, I think your point of in English is a good one. Um, I, I, you know, all we hear about in the U.S. press, Western press, but especially U.S. press, uh, you know, is sports washing, um, 9 11, Khashoggi, pariah. Uh, Nicholas Kristof wrote a piece recently for the New York Times comparing, you know, the crown prince to Putin, you know the rest of the globe especially the global south look at mbs and they're going this is great it's intriguing it's promising and we're not saying he doesn't have his problems we are not saying he hasn't made mistakes we're not saying any of that they're just looking at it in a whole different lens that we are and you know a lens that isn't uh isn't colored in a particular way and i think we've really you know we continue to limit our understanding of what's going on and why it matters. I think maybe in, in administration and in, in professional classes in terms of diplomacy and making, they're understanding it better, and you can see that US policy is adapting and, and, and updating. But in general, you, know, you still have these tropes that seem to assume that the rest of the world thinks the same way, and they don't. They're excited about this guy in Saudi Arabia. They're, they think it's you know, it, they think it's positive and and useful and constructive. You know, they don't look at it the same way they do. We're outnumbered.
0: Could't could not agree more. Richard, let us get to this incredible conversation we have coming up with Professor Simon Chadwick, all about sports, the business of sports globally, sports washing, we get to it all. This is so good.
1: A top notch 10 out of 10. That's what you said. Text 10 out of 10. Right I texted ahead. you right as it was done. I was like 10 out of 10. Yep. And I, I sent back 11 out of 10 question
0: mark. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> Saudi Arabia's sporting ambitions and investments have been dominating global coverage of the kingdom in recent months from football to golf, boxing, racing, and now tennis, which we will talk about in a few moments. We are delighted to speak now with Professor Simon Chadwick, He is professor of sport and geopolitical economy at Schema School of Business in Paris, where he is also a member of its think tank, Publica, as well as a program director of Schema's global executive MBA in sport. Professor Chadwick has consulted for and advised some of the biggest names in sports, such as FC Barcelona, UEFA, UEFA, Adidas, Association of Tennis Professionals. Simon, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Welcome.
3: Thank you for inviting me to do this. Let, let's jump jump right into it.
1: What Talk about your interest in this topic and, you know, where it began and how it's evolved, if you would.
3: I was a sports fan. I went to university, studied economics, lived a pretty normal, fairly predictable life, um, and then went to work in a university business school. Somebody said to me, hey, we should write about sports. In the mid '90s, um, most of the people writing about sport in a commercial way were in the United States, and so inevitably, my formative work focused on, for example, sponsorships. And sponsorships were you know, about selling burgers and fries and getting credit card signups and and this kind of thing. And gradually, over time, initially with sponsorships, but but later with other things, I I thought, ah, this seems a little different. And particularly into the two thousands, we had, for instance, Emirates Airline, uh, which, of course, you know, is selling seats. It's in the business of selling seats, but it was also in the business of of nation branding and nation building, and there seemed to be an element of soft power involved as well. And around this time, I also started to travel to 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 Asia a lot more, and certainly over the last fifteen years, I've I've spent a considerable amount of time not just in the gulf region um, but also in east asia as well particularly china and, and and of course there's something really kind of familiar about all of this you know people still kick the ball and drive the car and and you know participate in marathons and this kind of thing but but it seemed to be different in the sense that the state was much more prominent and and the types of or the kind of Bottom line considerations that you would find a, a merchandiser in the the United States considering didn't really seem to be applicable to, to to these territories, and so I I used to I remember I would go places and then sit on the plane coming back and thinking well how do I conceive of all of this because you know it it it, it is it is familiar it is similar but it is different at the same time. And all of this really crystallized in in terms of what I now call geopolitical economy of sport. Because if we think about Saudi Arabia, yes, there are some you know kind of bottom line business considerations in there. They're looking to make an investment that secures a financial return. But there's more besides, and and you've alluded to to sport washing already. But in addition to that, sport is being used for diplomatic purposes. Sport is being used for soft power soft power purposes. Uh, it is being used as a public health intervention. Uh, and and so this is this is not just about credit card signups anymore. it's about something much bigger, something much more profound. And I guess crucially underpinning all of this is is it's not just Saudi Arabia and China doing this. we're all doing it because certainly the countries that we're in, the United States and Britain, we have a competitive advantage in certain sports, and that competitive advantage has been established over a period of decades. And as we've seen with golf recently, you know, so much of a competitive advantage built up over over a period of decades. You you've got someone come with a lot of money comes along, and within two years, you know, that's it. Effectively, they've bought golf. And so these are these are interesting times, dynamic times, and and for people like us, you know, dare one say, even challenging times.
1: That's one of the fascinating things about this collected work, the editor work you've done. Um, and I'll just there's any number of quotes, but I mean, there's there's a pull here that I see. This economically sport is now seen by many countries as an important industrial sector that can that that can boost national income, help create jobs, drive export earnings and generate tax. As you say, you know, well beyond, you know, seats in the in the in the stadium or sponsorship. It's it, it's a it's a it's a national priority for a lot of these countries. Um, is it good
3: business? At the heart of all of this is a simple question. How much is the global sport economy worth? And and that's a question that hasn't convincingly been, been answered by anyone. So uh, a kind of average estimate is, is probably somewhere in the region of about $750 billion. There are other estimates that suggest more than a trillion dollars. Uh, in the United States still the biggest domestic sport uh, economy in the world probably accounts for about 40% of global industry size so you know make your own judgment is 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 an industry worth 400 billion dollars or 500 billion dollars to a single country you know is 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 that good business if we were to 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 look you know kind of more organically at this or should i say more at a more granular granular level If we take the British motorsport sector, for example, there are somewhere in the region of about 42,000 people working in the British motorsport sector at the moment, which is more than in mining in in Britain. But crucially, motorsports uh, companies in Britain are spending more than, for instance, pharmaceutical companies as a percentage of turnover um, on research and development. So certainly in terms of innovation in in the automotive sector, a lot of that is being driven by the British motorsport economy. So we are talking about, you know, kind of tangible numbers, hard numbers. If we were to look at an example from, let's say, soccer in 2008, when the Abu Dhabi government bought Manchester City, Manchester City was turning over annual revenues of less than £100 million per year. Uh, here we are now, 15 years later, and Manchester City is turning over more than £700 million per year. It is conceivable sometime in the next three or four years that Manchester City will become the first f- soccer club in the world to turn over billion in a billion pounds in a year. So all, all of this is relative. You know, it, it, it's not necessarily Google. You know, it's it's it, They're not major arms manufacturers, but nevertheless, they are capable of generating a profit, they're capable capable of generating significant revenue streams, sustaining employment. Um and of course this makes a contribution to, for example, um gross domestic product. And 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 if we look at the European Union sport economy, about 2.5% of the European Union sport U- European Union economy is accounted for by sport. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's big. It's big. As I say, it's not not IT or arms, but it is big.
1: Is it correct to say what we're talking about here is brand equity, you know, essentially soft power? I mean, whether it's a good business or not, there are other, ta- other reasons for, for countries to be involved in this. And and can you put it, I mean, it's impossible to put a value on that, but is that accurate to say?
3: I, I guess in some ways, for, for, for a U.S. audience, obviously, we, we trade in dollars across the world historically, certainly recent history of traded in dollars, Um but the biggest rival currency is 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 not not RMB in China or the pound or the euro. It's you, know, you could argue it's sport, um, and 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 sport seems to have currency across the world, and and certainly in terms of soft power and cultural influence, um, sport is is it, sport performs a role that arguably you know maybe movies do or possibly music but i think somebody in my position would argue that sport is even more powerful than mu- movies and, and music and and so certainly from let's say a saudi arabian perspective looking at the united states or looking at, at britain you know maybe a sport like the in- english premier league soccer uh you know they're going to they want a piece of that action because i think by being a prominent member of of the global sporting community it confers a particular legitimacy on, on, on a country. And, and once you ascend to that position of legitimacy, you become more trustworthy, more reliable. You're seen as being an important um, stakeholder in, 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 in world sport and the world economy that, that uh, other countries need need to, to account for. And just to give you one example, again, I very often say to my students, when I say Brazil, what do you think about and 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 immediately they say soccer and okay so what do you know about soccer and they talk about pele and and ronaldo and ronaldinho and neymar and so tell me about these people what is sexy football and it's cool and and so the conversation is about how fantastic brazil is what people don't talk about is destruction of the amazon by bolsonaro they don't talk about these really deep divisions inside brazil they talk about Brazil is a sexy country. And and so I think that that in currency terms, you know, it's much more powerful than saying you know, if you invest in your manufacturing sector, for instance, you know, it doesn't quite have the kudos or the power globally. The brand equity, as you referred to it, has as 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 other industrial sectors.
1: Well, we have to take a moment here, Lucian, I think to to thank Simon for his his consideration in using the term soccer for us you know non-experts yeah wow was and it it shows your comfort level and expertise for these conversations <laughs> simon which I, I really appreciate you're aware of, uh, <laughs> and we we try and say football i've, do, we I've done this not. before i've done then, this before <laughs> believe me <laughs> and i, I want to get i want to get to uh i want to focus uh, you know on the motivations behind saudi arabia and that sort of thing but before we do that I, want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time on sports washing, but I want to talk about one of the th- comments in the book is, uh, the, and I'll just quote it, the prevailing popular discourse about sports washing thus far appears to be rooted in the global north, particularly Europe, uh, in countries characterized by liberal democratic values, mm-hmm. and it, it, but uh, the term, as we know, certainly, you know, we're, we're knee deep in Saudi Arabia and sports washing is, you know, is, is, is much more than a dog whistle. It's an outright declaration of, you know, you're trying to, you know, hide your human rights issues, uh, and any number of, of flaws, uh, as perceived by the global North. Um, can you talk a little bit about how sports washing is used, sports washing is used, is
3: so I, 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 I guess the starting point for me is 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 to emphasize that we all know that there are image and reputational benefits associated by, with being a prominent member of the global sporting community. We all know this, right? So if you go back to the British Empire and colonial times, um, in a presentation I give to, to, to my students on sport washing, the first slide is that uh, there were 107,000 prisoners in British concentration camps in South Africa at the start of the 20th century. 28,000 of them died. Now, most of the world doesn't know this. And yet at the time, what was happening is the British government was sending soccer teams, cricket teams, rugby teams to South Africa to placate the local population. So to go back to your very first point about this term, sport pushing, it is a new term. But you go back decades, if not centuries, into history, and you've got examples of countries that have deployed sport for the purposes of distracting, of cleansing, of of placating. You then come through twentieth 20th, 20th century history, nineteen thirty six Olympics. We, you know, we're, we're all pretty familiar with what happened there in in Berlin. Um, you look at the nineteen seventy eight uh, World Cup in Argentina. The military junta used uh, used the World Cup for similar purposes. So this is nothing new. What I think is particularly significant about now is is we're in the midst of a pivot from global north to global south. And, and and this pivot from global north to global south is is leading to the emergence of of new centres of, of e- economic and political power. Um, I'm not suggesting that Europe or the United States is dead yet. I, I still think we've got some life left in us, but but we do. We are facing challenges from Beijing, from Riyadh, from from Mumbai. Um, you know, certainly from Moscow. And as a consequence of this, we are confronted by people and organizations from countries buying our sports, investing in our sports, staging sports. And we are unfamiliar with, uncomfortable with, feel somehow compromised by the prevailing societal values that that, that they may have. So if we take the case of Saudi Arabia, we know about Jamal Khashoggi and we know about... um, the treatment up until fairly recently of women. There are still concerns about the, the war in Yemen. There are still concerns about the the LGBTQ plus community in 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 Saudi Arabia, for instance, and and so it inevitably gives rise to concerns amongst the amongst populations in the global north. But what's really interesting is is when I go to when I go to the Gulf, when I go to China, when I go to other parts of the world, they they don't necessarily have this. Um, sensitivity towards what is happening in these countries. And, and I think there is a harsh reality for the global north, which is in this multipolar world that we live in. And by multipolar, I mean, there are lots of centers of power. So rather than, you know, kind of Washington DC, London, Paris, uh, maybe Tokyo, you know, we now have multiple centers of power across the world and we're going to be confronted with this on an ongoing basis. And if we, we want further evidence of that without wanting to preempt your, your other questions, you know, what happens on that day when the Saudi Arabian public investment fund decides that it wants to buy an NBA franchise? Um, because, you know, two years ago, we could never have imagined what has happened in professional golf, but it just happened. And so we've got to begin to think about how we prepare for what may come. And this you know, in, in policy and strategy terms, in terms of governmental policy and strategy, you know, we've got to get to grips with this and understand it. If I could just say one, one other thing. When I wrote the, the 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 section that you 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 just quoted there, uh, I was taking a very European perspective because sport washing and, and these kinds of issues have lived on our doorstep for quite some time. You know, keep in mind that Roman Abramovich, hey, we now know who Roman Abramovich is he's a, he's a sanctioned individual um, very close links to the kremlin he bought chelsea in 2004 and 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 so we we've we've had to confront these realities for almost two decades but what's been striking for me in in my engagement with this field is that it's really only over the last 18 months that a lot of people in the united states have started to think hold on a moment what is this this is this seems to us to be unusual, strange, threatening. It's a big challenge, and and so if I if 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 I rewrite the chapter, which maybe I might do in the future, you know, the United States definitely would be part of it then.
1: Yeah, we've caught up in a hurry with this live uh, live uh, situation. Uh, some just fascinating stuff, and I think you very intentionally use the term our sport um, because you're right. There's a proprietary nature to it and Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating when you talk about the pivot I would also say I'm really curious about your attitudes when you go to the region I have a and I know Lucian does Lucian has a whole you know I have a text thread which a bunch of my buds we're all jocks Mm -hmm. and so there we're talking about the the live PGA situation um and so uh, you know since I'm very deep in Saudi Arabia I'm sort of sharing my thoughts one of them was and this is x-rated was the saudis don't give a fat flying f what we think in terms of of this because their agenda you know in terms of sports washing in other words they've they've crashed through this this barrier or concerns about this because their agenda is is significantly broader and uh much more anchored in their domestic uh priorities uh can you talk a little bit about the the Saudi agenda on this, and and you've talked about soft power, you've talked about the value of a brand equity, you've talked about the finances, but you know, for a, for a country like Saudi Arabia, who knows it is going to go into headwinds when it gets itself involved in these things, but goes ahead anyway and does it in a in a, an extraordinarily uh, large footprint way.
3: So, uh, as, as you will know, um, Saudi Arabia is is actually a relatively young country but nevertheless a, a country that has a history of revenue revenue generation significant revenue generation through oil and gas but the way in which the country has been ruled and, and the way in which decisions have been made um i guess you could say using a sporting metaphor resulted in saudi arabia for for large parts of the last 100 years punching below its weight uh and 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 Essentially, what you what you now have is a young guy who is more dynamic, who wants to break out of the old traditions and orthodoxies that exist within Saudi Arabia. And and I'll use this term um, because I think it's probably an accurate one to a a large extent. Accurate is Mohammed bin Salman wants to make Saudi Arabia great again. (laughs) <laughs> or, or, or maybe to make Saudi Arabia great for the first time and and if, if we think about our world, you want to watch a movie you want you watch a Hollywood movie you know, you want to watch basketball, you watch the NBA you want to watch soccer, you watch the Premier League um you know you want you want a great historical moment you go to London or Oxford you, you, you want fashion and style, you go to Paris and 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 i guess for for us that you know that that is the world and for many people across the world that is the world but Mohammed bin, bin salman is effectively saying hold on a moment that's not how how i see the world and and that's not how i want the future to be because i believe that we have the economic and political strength to to transform and to recreate the world and 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 the view from Riyadh is, is that Saudi Arabia wants to be at the center of a new world order, and and so just to you know we got you know New York and Washington D C and London and Paris and Frankfurt as a financial center for example, you know, Saudi Arabia would see itself as replacing, not necessarily supplementing or or, or serving in a subservient role, but being the predominant influence in 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 um in in certain sectors. So there is a battle taking place. You know, we, we obviously know about battles, you know, or battlefield battles with with guns and and tanks and, and that are taking place in the world right now, in places like Syria and Ukraine. And but I also think, for me personally, these battles are also taking place in sport.
1: Uh, and, an... Sorry, go ahead.
3: Sorry, sorry, no. and 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 uh, again, you know, if you if you indulge the English guy in in the room, uh, look at Premier League soccer. Our clubs are either owned by Asians or Americans. And and so essentially, the football fields of Premier League soccer teams have become the battlegrounds for different models of ownership. You've got significant private equity investment at, at Chelsea, at Arsenal um, at Manchester United, but you've also got Gulf state investment too, at Manchester city at Newcastle United, possibly soon at Manchester, uh, sorry, at Newcastle United, Manchester city, possibly soon at, uh, at Manchester United with the categories as well. So in, in some ways sport has become a battlefield. Why golf? Because I think, uh, it's for several reasons. Um, you talk about saudi arabia wanting to be miami uh, i'll i'll keep it within the region saudi arabia wants to be dubai and 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 what happens in dubai people go to shopping malls and take beach holidays and stay in nice hotels eat some food play golf and and so as part of the the tourism strategy the country's tourism strategy i think golf is important and and let's be honest about it so a lot of business deals are still cut on golf courses, so you know you you, you you're positioning yourself at, at the heart of a number of different networks. By if you've got business people from across the world meeting to play golf, you know that's where business deals are cut. I think it's important too to keep in mind that the the, the growth markets in golf over the last decade and and looking ahead possibly over the next decade too are in Asia. You know, they're not in Europe they' they're not even in the United States you know they, these are fairly fairly mature markets with relatively low growth and so again playing to that earlier observation that I made about being a at the new center of the world I think there is something significant about Gulf in Asia in territories like South Korea and, and and Japan um so tourism certainly uh Certainly, um, some potential for for uh, attracting you know business clients that kind of thing. But I also think a uh, low hanging fruit as well, because golf its its established business model was was lucrative, but perhaps not as lucrative as it could be. And there were some questions about the financial security going forward of of of, of professional golf and effectively the deal that's just been done and i do think there's something kind of trumpian about the deal that's just been done forget about the rules you know let's just do, let, let's do a deal um and they did a deal and 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 the pga brought history historically accumulated brand equity legitimacy but it perhaps didn't have the uh the economic strength the financial strength that pot- potentially it could have had What happened on the other side of the deal is a country with no legitimacy comes looking, has the money to be able to buy, and they they struck a deal. And and so to ascend to that position of legitimacy very quickly um, through economic means is an interesting model, but I think it's a model that we'll see being replicated. It's interesting because, again, as you may know, if we use an example like Chidia. Which is uh, the world's biggest entertainment city currently being constructed outside um, outside Riyadh. There will be a there'll be a Formula One circuit there, and and this will replace the uh, the Jeddah Formula One circuit in twenty twenty five. Now, I I take the view that that Chidea, as a racing circuit needs anchor tenants, and and you may know that that over the last week. Um, the, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund has divested itself of its share in the McLaren F1 team. But earlier uh, earlier on in the year, um, had a, a acquired a stake in Aston Martin. I actually, I think towards the end of last year, acquired a stake in Aston Martin. Now, how would it be that Saudi Arabia buys Aston Martin and relocates Aston Martin, the F1 team, to Chidiya and, and you know, essentially, the Aston Martin team becomes the anchor tenant at the, the F1 circuit. And then what happens is there's a, an industrial clustering effect because I think one of the, the, one of the ambitions, one of the goals for the Saudi Arabians is you don't just buy a team and put it there. You, you create an ecosystem around the assets that you've acquired. And, and, and so whether it's Formula One, Golf, um, we're seeing in cricket now, uh, digital technologies, cinema, you know Saudi Arabia not just buying for the sake of buying but buying with a view that, it, that in essence it pump primes or, or it enables the development of an ecosystem around the assets that they've acquired. Um, having said that, they may not just acquire assets. So certainly what we're hearing in sport is, is that they, they'll develop their own assets that with their with their own IP. Uh, that can't be found anywhere else in the world. So you know there are all kinds of possibilities in there.
1: Well, I think the uh, and Lucian and I, as I m- mentioned, we're deep into this, and we I think we we agree, Lucian. We are, are not have not sufficiently understood the full scope of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's um, aspirations. I mean, he dreams big, dreams very big. And it is fascinating. They had and, and then the McLaren, you you referenced that the Bahrainis, I guess, bought up their shares. Um, you know, that the McLaren, there's a McLaren shop was to go into the neon. And you, you know, they could switch it out, as you say, for Aston Martin. And also Aston Martin just just had a signed an agreement with Lucid to you know for some of that EV technology. You can mm-hmm. see all these things coming together. And uh, and 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 it is fascinating. Uh the way these things work and i but another thing we often talk about in the 966 is that mm-hmm. there is a domestic component in what saudi arabia is doing internationally uh it's particularly apparent with their uh forays into soccer and and building up the local uh clubs the pif just invested in four but they've also uh significantly invested in the larger football ecosystem there and 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 as you know and I think our readers know I mean our listeners know from watch, listening to this Saudi Arabia has a long history of of fanatic football support um but this is also part and parcel of you know one of the reasons they're investing in these com- these these clubs is they want them to go private eventually they want them to be valuable franchises and they want the whole league to be worth something like 2.5 billion by 2030 they also are very actively trying to increase participation in sports on the part of its populace um do you see this when you travel to the region do you see these things tied together uh have you have you seen progress in this in this aspect
3: so the, the 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 point you made about uh the privatization of clubs is an interesting one um as somebody who was uh who lived through the thatcher years in in britain um the kind of uh free market revolution that thatcher's notion of privatization meant uh, appears to be some considerable distance away from uh, saudi arabia's interpretation of privatization certainly of its uh of its soccer clubs the privatization plan has been ongoing from two thousand fifteen. Um, an announcement was was made back in two thousand fifteen that they were seeking to 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 privatize those soccer clubs. So, it's only within the last two or three weeks that that the outcome of that planning has has taken place. And and what I find interesting about it is is a lot of people when you talk about Saudi Arabia, they do talk about economic transformation, and and we need to remove the country needs to remove itself from this oil and gas dependence but there is a there is another dimension to the economic transformation which is around enterprise and entrepreneurship and risk taking and investment and 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 I think that that what's now ha- happening in football is designed to encourage those some of those investors in sport and and certainly some of those state entities that have an involvement in in the clubs to operate soccer clubs in a, in a much more commercial way now what i find interesting about the plan is is there's no mention of profit which if you are paying cristiano ronaldo 400 million dollars for for a, a two year deal you, know, you don't talk about profit the ambitions seem to be framed in terms of revenue generation and if we look at some of the uh, the, the the rankings of of soccer team performance around the world they emphasize revenue generation not cost control or profit um, but saudi arabia is certainly learning to, to 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 play this game and it's part of this broader economic transformation agenda but what i what i also find interesting about your question is is there's an there's a new implied social contract in saudi arabia that's that's how I see this. And and I've been in Saudi Arabia several times recently and, and you see this. It's you know, in some ways it's a great time to be a Saudi Arabian. Because and, and if we do the demographics on it to begin with, 70% of the population aged under 35, it's a Gen Z population. And 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 these are Gen Z in the same way as Gen Z Z all over the world. You know, people born and brought up on Instagram and and YouTube and Netflix and Real Madrid and Chanel handbags and Gucci shoes. Uh, so, you know, in that respect, you could say you know they are just like everybody else across the world. And so, what the government is now doing is, you you want Ronaldo? You got Ronaldo. You, you want Real Madrid? you're an association with Real Madrid? You got it. You want the World Cup? Sure, yeah, we'll 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 try. Um, but at the same time, what we've seen this year in Saudi Arabia is, for instance. A significant clampdown on dissenting voices on social media. And 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 for me, what drives to the very heart of, of the investments in the experience economy is, is fear of another Arab Spring. And, and, and what Mohammed bin Salman doesn't want is disaffected 25 year olds knocking knocking on his front door, you know, holding Molotov cocktails saying, hey, time's up. And, and so there is a there is a an internal political basis to this uh, it, it's about stability and resilience and about security ultimately of, of of the ruling of the ruling family but beyond that there are health problems Saudi Arabia is in the midst of a health crisis public health crisis high rates of hypertension diabetes heart disease strokes uh it's obesity. a country yeah. yeah obesity it's a country in which it's it's let's be honest about it. Over, over the last decades, it's not been easy to exercise for women, not at all anyway, but even for the men, for, for significant parts of the year, you, know, you can't go outside and exercise. And so one interpretation of what's happening, or one one standpoint, is that it's a public health intervention and, and designed to engage people with sports so that they participate more. And as you will know, we're now seeing, or we have now seen, female only gyms springing up around uh, around Saudi Arabia so for the first time women can go and exercise and and this is really important certainly in terms of you know the sense of physical and, and psychological well-being that, that that Saudi Arabian women have but beyond that we, we talked about the tangibles and the bottom line there's also the intangibles and, and 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 the soft power dimensions to this and also self-image and and that is about Projecting an image of of a of a a more modern, newer, more progressive, outward looking Saudi Arabia, but also I, I I used the phrase earlier, you know, making Saudi Arabia great again. You know, Saudi Arabia. I think part of this is designed to ensure that Saudi Arabians actually feel good about their country and feel proud about their country. And there is a, a social cohesion agenda in there, and and you will know this that in the the west of the country you have a, a predominantly a sunny population, in the east of the country you've got a, a predominantly Shia population, and then in the middle there's not really too much happens at all because it's it's largely desert. You know, so the kind of social cohesion challenges that that our societies face, you know, you've got comparable social cohesion challenges that Saudi Arabia faces. So I think you know domestically sport helps bring the nation together. It forges an identity and brands Saudi Arabia. The intention is to make it great. And it's something that people can rally around.
1: Spot on. I mean that's that's really hits it right on target. And you see that in something like, you know, the PIF invested in in Al Nasr al-Halal, Ittihad and Al Ahli. Al-Ahli, which has just been relegated. But is a traditionally a strong strong club, but they invested in it because it's in Jeddah. And you know, you, you can, you know, you can that's a nice rivalry between Ahli and Etihad. Um uh, this is something we talk about in the 966, the pef- public health intervention. And I think you that's a wonderful phrase because that's exactly what it is. On top of that, you also clearly identify the challenges when you have a youth population with nothing to do and nowhere to do it. You know, this is when you have generations lost to extremism and, and any number of other uh, unfortunate results. And, and you know, the, the public health intervention, the entertainment options, the the travel options, these are all intended to make it great to be Saudi, like you say.
3: You know, the, the one thing that I'd not mentioned, which you, you have just mentioned, which is very, very important. Um, you know, it's 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 not good business to be perceived globally as 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 housing or being a, a home to uh extremists uh and 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 certainly in in from a us perspective you know we're, we're witnessing saudi arabia trying to reinvent itself and to move away from those kind of 911 associations um anyway, as i'm sure you know the phrase you know the devil makes uh, work for idle hands to do and and um and so in that respect by by catering for for this gen z or by addressing the needs of this gen z community you're not just, you know, you're not just getting them exercising. You're not just giving them something to get excited about. You, you know, we, you know, we see this, we see this in, in in cities across America. We see this in cities across Europe is you keep, you keep kids away from, you know, from drugs, from crime, from alcohol, from mm-hmm. you know, extremism by getting them involved in playing sports. And, and I think the same logic has been embraced by the Saudi Arabians um, in a way that, you, even if you go back a decade, it, you know it wasn't like this. It has changed dramatically. And I, I guess it, 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 I, the first time I went to Saudi Arabia, I was cautious and suspicious, and dare I say, even worried. Um, but when I've been back subsequently, the last two visits, uh, I, I said to someone, "What's what's happened here?" and and they said uh, well when the pandemic came saudi arabia went to sleep and when it woke up it was a completely different country and uh, and 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 i think this is uh and and for me this you you do get a sense of this is this is a country in in the midst of dramatic change um there are still clearly elements that you know we as as people from the global north don't necessarily feel comfortable with but seen from seen as a strategic exercise of, of, in terms of national transformation, you know this is underway and, and sport plays a central role in this.
0: Simon, two more questions. The second one's kind of a two-parter, but just really quickly, Richard asked earlier about Saudi PIF interest in golf. You consulted with the ATP Tour. What is their interest in tennis and any any thoughts on where that will go after the meeting was reported last week by the Financial Times uh, between the head of the ATP and the PIF?
3: So I've asked one or two people, what do you think? And and the view on the street seems to be it's just a matter of time. And, and th- I think there is an issue of power and control. You know, the United States is the home of elite professional sport in the 21st century certainly in the 20th century and into the 21st century you know you've lived the dream and so saudi arabia now wants to live the dream and 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 have power control influence over a range of sports in the same ways as, as europeans and north americans have done for the last 150 200 years so that's certainly part of it i i think also there's something around um tourism the tourism agenda that that, that we talked about previously Crucially, we, we haven't mentioned, and it's really important to mention, is, is Saudi Arabia sees itself as being an event destination. Mm. And, and this is already happening. WWE, uh, mixed martial arts, boxing bouts, uh, motor racing events, Formula E, Formula One, Paris-Dakar Rally, uh, soccer. You've had the Spanish Super Cup, the Italian Super Cup. Now you get you know, tennis tournaments, tennis events, and, and what's important for listeners to, to think about when we're, when we're talking about uh, countries as event destinations is the venues, the associated infrastructure, the metro network, the road network, the shopping malls, the hotels. I guess the comparison, the, the most immediate comparison we could make is with next door neighbor Qatar. You have no metro network. You have no motorway network. You don't really have high quality hotels or shopping malls you bid for the World Cup, you win the right to stage the World Cup and that becomes the driver of nas- national infrastructural development. And so I think Saudi Arabia too is following that template.
1: Can I, Lucian, let me jump in here because I, I really want this point to be emphasized because <clears throat> uh, so many people we talk to in the States, Lucian, uh, look at uh, Saudi interests live, for example, you know, interest in sports as a as a one thing, a very compartmentalized thing. But when we see it, just as you say, as an integrated, larger part of a larger ecosystem, you know, it's not just bringing entertainment. It's it's what happens. It's not just big building King Salman Park. It's also uh, all the real estate that it will create around there, all the, the shops and the retail opportunities, the transportation required. In other words, they look at it very much in an integrated fashion. This is just one part of a multifaceted plan that has domestic international economic, political social ramifications and but we just see tend to see just this one part you know when they're when they're invading our sport. Uh, so I, I really wanted I, what you just said was just right on target it, because it is integrated.
3: So can I can I just kind of follow up on that um In the United States you have many of the world's best business schools and you send many of your young people to these world's best business schools. And when they're at these business schools, you tell them your strategy must be joined up. It must be holistic. And then what those people do is they go and work in big consulting consulting companies in Manhattan. And and then what happens is they go and consult with, for example, the Saudi Arabian government. And then they tell the Saudi Arabian government, you know what, your strategy should be joined up. And, And so... I I don't want people to feel disrespected by Americans to feel disrespected by this, but you know, there, there is, there is some U S DNA in all of this.
1: This is a path that's been well tried. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, 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 and I think what's really, really important for North Americans listening to this is to understand that, you know, they're doing what you've taught them to do, which is you, you you do, Hey, let's buy a soccer club because it's going to be cool. Right. (laughs) <laughs> you buy a so you buy a you buy you buy a soccer club because what you then do is that soccer club can build political influence in the host nation. Um, it can serve as the basis for enabling industrial networks to be created, and we've seen that certainly in in central Manchester through Abu Dhabi ownership of Manchester City. Um, what you're also doing at the same time is it is a public health intervention. And so, this kind of holistic approach to strategic planning and, and 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 management, you know, this is this is year one, day one, your module one hundred one, or right? your Harvard MBA, or wherever it is that you 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 do this. And and so, you know, this is textbook strategy in some ways.
0: You did an amazing job, Simon, uh, transitioning us to the U.S., which is uh, with this second part, two-part question will come from. We just saw Qatar break the barrier with an investment into Richard, our hometown here, Washington, D.C., with Monumental Sports. Uh, The QIA opened an office in Manhattan for this purpose. The PIF already has an office in New York City. And we talked about this earlier. The top three leagues by market cap in the world are the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA. They're all in the USA. So is this a watershed moment for Middle East or even global sovereign wealth funds into American sports? Is this like the moment where they start creeping in or is this just a one-off in your opinion?
3: I think this is the moment. And again, what I think we've got to keep in mind is is if we take the NBA, for example, the NBA is is not a North American sports property. It's a global sports property. The NBA is already in China. It's in the Gulf region. In Abu Dhabi, it's it's playing matches in in um in Rwanda, playing matches in Paris, and 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 so inevitably, given the the potential market size and engagement with this property, you're going to get big global investors taking paying very close attention to not just the league itself, but to franchises within the league, and we've already seen Qatar. Um, making an initial foray, obviously, it's sensitive. It's sensitive, I think, because of the historical associations that, that the United States has with with some of these Gulf nations, particularly Saudi Arabia. But it's sensitive too because, I, as I mentioned earlier, we are used to it by now. You know, foreigners own every sport in Europe, you know, not not just one or two, you know, one or two sports and one or two minor stakes. Yeah, you know, we're used to this in the United States this is a major transformation. And, and so this these are tentative first steps. And you can imagine in in, in 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 on the East Coast, you know maybe on the West Coast there might be some receptiveness to this. But once you begin driving into the industrial heartland and when I talk into, talk about industrial heartland, I'm talking about of U.S sport and and particularly in some of those states where there is a particularly uh, you know, there is a certain view of the of the Gulf region. It's going to take some changing of, of, of perceptions and attitudes and, and and ensuring that it can be managed appropriately. You know I, I can I can talk now as, as, a, as an English guy who was in England when Saudi Arabia bought Newcastle United. this caused a great deal of, of consternation. But imagine if you take that and you transplant it in in, in certain states of the United States, this this could cause uproar. So they, this kind of head-on, revolutionary, we're going to take you on and we're going to win is is not going to work. It, it has to be done sensitively by stealth over a period of years. So I'm not about to see, we're not about to see, see wholesale disposal of N- NFL or NBA f- um, franchises to, to to Gulf investors anytime soon. But I think what we will see over a period of time is is the gradual um penetration of the market by Gulf investors.
0: Yeah, and just to follow on to that, I mean, because uh, also here locally, we're, our football team, the Washington Commanders, is completing its sale with Josh Harris as the lead buyer in a consortium of buyers. The price for that is $6 billion. And the reason why it's taking so long, pretty much, is because the NFL has had to go through the finances of all of the individual buyers. Um, and what I think is, it's sort of forcing is... As the valuations get higher and higher, the number of buyers gets smaller and smaller. I mean, only so many people have $6 billion sitting around, especially in liquid cash. So the NFL may be butting up against a moment where if they want the price of the next NFL franchise to go higher, they may need to open up to sovereign wealth funds as maybe minority owners. And, you know, it goes from there. Would you agree with that as maybe a contributor to this moment, especially for U.S. sports?
3: I mean, a simple answer to that is yes, and 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 what I what I believe we're seeing is is almost like a crowding out effect, uh, which is you know, most of us, including the three of us, you know, we, we don't have the money to to buy these kinds of assets, and and so you know, as you rightly point out, as values increase, it reduces the the, the field of prospective buyers. What I think is, is is really interesting, certainly in terms of your question, is is something that's happened here in in UK over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we know Clearlake, Todd Bowley, uh, owner of Chelsea, uh, he saved us. A US private equity investor saved us from the evil empire, from Roman Abramovich and links to the Kremlin. And we can all breathe a sigh of relief, thankfully. But what what it now appears is, is and this is unconfirmed, but there is significant um, speculation that the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund is a is a major shareholder in Clearlake, uh, Todd Bowley's investment vehicle. Now that would be interesting, um, particularly in a, in a, in an English Premier League context, because of course the public investment fund that owns eighty percent of Newcastle United, Newcastle United. Now just just for people who who perhaps don't understand the regulations in the English Premier League, if you own a majority stake in one Premier League club, you can't own more than. Ten percent stake in another club because obviously it presents a conflict of interest. So, you know, if if PIF owned Chelsea and PIF owned Newcastle, that would be you know that would be a no-no. That couldn't happen. But of course, if what you're doing is you're funding Clearlake as the as the owner of Chelsea, indirectly you have a, an influence over two clubs, and and that raises all manner of, of ownership issues and, and and more broadly governance issues. So I, I think that that what England is already encountering, what Britain is already encountering, what France is already encountering too, is is the realities of this complex 21st century geopolitical environment. And we are having to think carefully about the rules, the regulations, who we deem to be fit and proper as owners of these organisations, of these sports franchises. But I suspect that sometime pretty soon, uh, the United States and sports within the United States will face similar such confrontations and, and, and juxtapositions.
1: The uh, I think it was interesting you tentative and uh, and Lucian was talking about uh, the the Cutter Investment Authority five percent in monumental sports here. Monumental sports is is they own the Washington Wizards NBA franchise, the WNBA franchise, and NHL franchise. I, and Lucian I don't know if you've seen but I've been uh, nearly nearly a peep really Adam no. Silver Adam Silver basically is Adam Silver the the, the president of NBA basically said yeah sure glad mm-hmm. to have him and and but as you say it's going to have to be tentative and little by little and I and, and another question Simon and that you your mention of the Chelsea I'm good, can I can, can, so, 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 sure, can, sure.
3: can I can I just come back to you on that I mean I, yeah, yeah. in in sport there's a big turf war going on uh, so you know, is it the nba is it uefa champions league soccer is it formula one maybe it's atp maybe it's professional golf and 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 my sense from from people who work in the sector is if we don't take the, mo- the money from saudi arabia saudi arabians will take the money somewhere else mm-hmm. and, and 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 so they're abs- this is absolutely a factor and and rather than saying well no we really don't want your 10 billion dollars you know what 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 sports rights owners are doing are saying okay let's try and work this let's try and think about how we we spin this deal so we're not just taking the money you know, we're doing we're doing it to effect positive social change in Saudi Arabia for example so you know expect to see a lot more of this kind of spin because you know, it's a lot of money and and there are rival sports who will take that money if you don't
1: and Saudi Arabia is putting the, you know the Asian football cup championship's going to be held in saudi arabia the Mm -hmm. you know they're they're in they're in for the expo uh 2030 now maybe probably 2034 um you know they certainly want to be in play for a world cup uh venue they're in play for any number of convening events and and they're coming in heavy with a lot of money it's extremely compelling and and so just to your point
3: yeah, I mean, I, I and and I and again, I, I kind of have to respond to that. There are there are two things the Saudi Arabians are doing. They're engaged in st- strategic acquisitions, so we need this for this purpose. But they're not averse to engaging in opportunistic uh, purchases as well. Right. And so, if you look at if you look at Newcastle United, this was just this three hundred million dollars. Yes. it's just it's just nothing. You know, it's it's like back back pocket change for the Saudi Arabians. But you know, across the world there, there's evidence that, that owning a soccer club can achieve certain ends for you. So as we would say in Britain, you know, the Saudi Arabians took a punt. So you know it's 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 really important to 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 make a distinction between the, the strategy and the opportunism. I think the interesting thing about the opportunistic purchases as well, if they're not working out, they'll sell. And I'm not yeah. saying that I'm not suggesting they're about to sell Newcastle United, but if it doesn't work out, they will sell, they will dispose of their assets
1: and they'll probably make money on it. You know, absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah. You know, owning a franchise like that, especially one that they've done well and turning around in terms of the Premier yeah. League standings, you know, it's, it's good money. And, and, you know, Lucian referenced the Washington commanders, what did Dan Snyder buy it for? 800 million, 800 million. Yeah. 800 million. What 22 years ago, he's selling it for 6 billion. After running it into the ground, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, 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 the worst managed franchise maybe in the history of sports. But yeah, uh, and he's got after,
3: you know, I, I, maybe maybe after Newcastle United, the worst managed franchise. <laughs> and, 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 well, yeah, and, I mean, and, prior and, to
1: the Saudi, yeah. Yeah. prior
3: and, and 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 that's the that's the point that I wanted to make is 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 that the previous owner of Newcastle United had essentially rinsed value from the asset and done nothing more, and 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 it was dead on its feet. And and what the Saudi Arabians have done is is you know and and, and this needs to be acknowledged is is that commercially there and and also culturally too, they are in the midst of of a transformation of their asset. So this is not just the case of well, you know, we buy the asset and, and we try and do what we can with it and then move away. There does seem to be an appetite to engage in a process of transformation so that whatever whatever value is in the asset, they're able to maximize that value um, before they dispose of it. So, you know, I, I think it is important to stress that this is not just, these are not just trophy assets that you put on your mantel shelf and, and leave there and look at, you know, they are working these assets, they are sweating them. Mm-hmm.
0: Simon Chadwick is Professor of Sport and Geopolitical Economy at the Schema Schema Business School in Paris. He's an author, widely published writer, and a great follow on Twitter these days, especially with all of these mega deals being announced. You can follow him at Prof underscore Chadwick, P-R-O-F underscore Chadwick. Professor Chadwick, thank you so much. Incredible insights. We appreciate
3: it. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great.
1: Well, you'll be invited back for sure just yep. to chat because this was fun. Uh, listeners should know obviously, just an edited work just now Geopolitical Economy of Sport, Power, Politics, Money, and the State. It's been so well received. I understand uh, Simon Chadwick has been asked to do one on football, right?
3: So. you know what this this is, a, this is a, so do we call it football or do we call it soccer or do we soccer. go for the
1: what will your title be what will the title be? you
3: know what I, mean, I think i'll adopt the george w bush interpretation <laughs> which which is soccer ball uh, so, think, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was our conversation with professor simon chadwick just so good you can watch These segments, that segment, other segments that we do all on YouTube, they kind of segment out over the week so that you always have something fresh if that's where you're watching us. Obviously, you get the whole um, Lamb Kebsa uh, as (laughs) as an audio file each week, but you can listen to each part uh, via YouTube if you want. We've got some interesting b-roll there as well so anyway thanks to professor simon richard he has the brand he must come back now
1: (laughs) he's yeah he does he's part of the the 966 team and he seemed to be by the way actually the next time we get together i hope it's in a bar because like he said you know this would be fun to chat about over a, a beverage
0: yeah, you and I don't drink enough together. But if we were to do that true. here, you know, <laughs> it would
1: be weird. We'd be at home alone. So <laughs> I liked it. I liked how you finished that with a little hesitation. You and I don't <laughs> drink enough
0: together. <laughs> Richard, let's get to yellow
1: Yellow. Saudi in a minute.
0: <laughs> the one part of our podcast where our <laughs> listeners are compelled to remove their headphones for exactly. Not between a, five
1: and 10 seconds. Make yep.
0: it stop. Stop, guys.
1: <laughs> All right. Number one, Muslim pilgrims in Mecca circled the Kaaba, Islam's holiest site, and then converged on a vast tent camp in the nearby desert, officially opening the annual Hajj pilgrimage. Uh, this returning and thus returning at the maximum capacity, the first time since the coronavirus pandemic. So far, more than 1.8 million pilgrims from all over the world have already amassed in and around Mecca for the Hajj. And the number was still growing as more public pilgrims from inside Saudi Arabia joined, said a spokesman for the Saudi Hajj ministry. This We put this together early in the, in the week. It's now, you know, two, 2 million, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's also closing to the end. We, we, Eid al-Adha started um, the 28th the so last three days of the Hajj. So they've been to Mina, they've stoned the devil at uh and they, you know, and they've been to Mount Arafat. Uh so it's it's exciting. This is really exciting, you know, as mm-hmm. as, as it's as as the blurb said, you know, first time they've been back to full capacity since 2019.
0: Yeah, Eid al-Adha Mubarak to all listeners and viewers of the 966. Uh, we meant to do that at the beginning actually, Richard, but you know, yeah, that's true. our our greetings for everybody. Um yeah, so important story to 2 million people. Uh, there's always with the Hajj, Richard, you, you know, you, as you've followed it over the years, there's always like big storylines that emerge anytime the Hajj happens in the summer people are talking about what it's like to be outside for 10 hours in 120 degree weather. So there's that, there's a health and safety component. Increasingly, there's an AI component and crowd management is something that gets brought up every year because it is a massive operation to sort of manage the crowds and get them everybody in the right place. And, you know, there's some talk recently, Richard, this year as well about the affordability of the Hajj. Um, because it's getting more and more expensive to get there and to get around. And, you know, so there's challenges with that because it's for all able-bodied um, followers of, of Islam. So it's, you know, I, the, you know, there's stories about how expensive it's getting and stuff just cause it's tough to to do and tough to get there. But, um, the kingdom, this is big business for the kingdom for sure. Um, 10 to $15 billion a year. Um, roughly some people estimate there's no like actual figure, but you know, the, um pandemic was tough for Saudi authorities because they had to make the decision for public safety to shut down and it's th- this is their annual thing so anyway um you know safety and and best wishes to anybody doing the Hajj this year and uh yeah a, a, a pretty cool time
1: it's a good point and I think it lends so uh, that's the number I've heard is like 12 billion in 2019 but you're right exactly 10 to 15 billion which uh you know adds to the Saudi decision for public health reasons to basically eliminate it in 2020 and reduce it considerably in 2021 uh and 2022 and you know because they're giving away billions in terms of revenue but they made the right public health decision and this is fascinating because and as we've said before please uh you know the minister of hajj and umrah uh Please come join us because what you're doing is fascinating because not only as you mentioned there's there's advances on the ground in terms of logistics and safety and health and, and monitoring and supervision. Uh, and it seems to have gone well this year, you know, but doing it in high summer has all sorts of risks but there's also complete revamping of, of how to get there, you know there's now that the, the, the portals are now really uh, government run and you know we're shaking out now if that makes it more expensive less expensive in fact if in fact it's going to be a better experience for pilgrims which is the aim uh and it's going to be a safer experience a less variable experience so these, that's what they're going for because they really want to make the hush not only um a sort of a uniform uniformly positive safe experience they also want to derive more revenue from it so we're in a fascinating point right now. You know, mm-hmm. the first full one coming out after significant changes on how you book your Hajj. You know, flights, room, board. Maybe you stay afterwards. But any you know, there's a lot of things going on, and and there's a goal in mind. And it'd be interesting at some point to see how we're how they're progressing towards achieving those goals.
0: Uh, Richard, yellow number two. Saudi Arabia uh, emerges at the forefront of air taxi tech with the test of Volocopter in collaboration with Neom. Something that I mentioned in my One Big Thing, but Saudi Arabia's Neom hosted the first test campaign of air taxi flights in the Northwest of Saudi Arabia, building on a reputation of a leader in technologies in the underdevelopment futuristic zone of Neom. The flight test campaign lasted over a week and built on 18 months of collaboration between Neom GACA, the General Authority of Civil Aviation, and Volocopter, with the aim of implementing and scaling an electric urban air mobility ecosystem and a testbed in NEOM. This is according to a statement. Just cool. It's <laughs> really cool. So all
1: about it. Yeah, it is cool. I mean, it would be interesting to see where it goes. So I guess it's, it's EV EVTOL, EVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. And the yep. best part of this is is they they land and take off at a
0: vertiport. Vertiport. Okay, cuz vertiport. I like to take the drone Richard we have and launch it next to the pool here and to see if it comes back next to the pool and doesn't land in the pool and it's amazing <laughs> how accurate it is. So vertiport. Okay. I know Vertaport. they're building one in Paris as well. So
1: well, uh, I guess the Saudi's own own a piece of uh Volocopter Neom, uh you know has an investment in a joint venture like you you said uh nobody none of these eVTOLs have been certified and you've got a cut a lot of players you got Volocopter Joby Archer um but there's people investing in it they're racing to try and get it you know viable and get it certified it's a it's um you know it's a you have to understand you know you think of of um you know uh Tesla's you know uh, some of their navigation things. It, it takes tremendous amount of testing. You're still sort of afraid to trust it because of the consequences of a, of a mishap are so great. Uh, I think it's interesting because when you think about something like this, it, it'd really be useful in what? Uh, a really congested city, maybe that has pollution issues. So you have electronic, you know, a helicopter personally that you can get you and avoid congestion and that sort of thing. But the Saudis are thinking about it an entirely different way and as with so many of the things they're they're investing and in trying to get ahead of the curve in terms of technology they think is going to be valuable
0: yeah I, I love this space because the applications are unlimited and you can just use your imagination on how you one would use it um i think the original or the initial application will be maybe not for neon but in, in paris they're working on using it as a shuttle so you don't get your own they're just going back and forth as like an intercity type shuttle that would go over from one side of the city to the other. That would take, you know, 20 minutes instead of two and a half hours or whatever, like around the beltway, just going across in the, in DC. Um, but man, yeah, that would be just the coolest thing ever. (laughs) And I I want one.
1: (laughs) uh, Yeah. Apparently at at the, the recent, uh, the Paris air show just earlier this month, these were a hot item, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the electric EV toll, and I guess Volocopter is trying to get certified by the Paris Olympic and Paralympic Games in 2024. So, you know, they, they have a lot of hoops to jump through, as do other like Joby's doing the same thing in California, American firm, trying to get certified. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, those are tough hurdles to, to get over. But, that's you know, it's fascinating that it's happening in Neom, as well as, you know, California, as well as Paris and Germany. I mean, uh, it's a cool thing yeah a great case for tech transfer i mean this is the case
0: for it you know you get a you move it to a place where you can freely test and you can you have a good environment for this type of stuff with the investor bringing the money in and bringing the company over it's it just kind of is cool and makes sense so yeah i mean hopefully this speeds everything up um in terms of ev otl because you know yeah, because I want so badly yeah <laughs> and when they become available I'm in line to buy because that would change everything would change so much if you think about the implications not just for getting around but for real estate and where people live and you know so um
1: because
0: yeah would it have
1: enough range to get from me to you
0: so what is the range of the volocopter now I we're I, we're I about think 40 miles apart
1: yeah no, I don't think it's that. And it's well, over. It's over water too, but over water. So yeah. Nonetheless, should it come to pass, you know, we may be thinking, you know, we, we've obviously been jonesing for a lucid. You know, we may need to it for. We're, a we're not
0: thinking big enough. Is obviously the challenge here. We need Volocopter, and we are open to sponsorship from Volocopter. We'll talk about it every week, and we'll do a little, you know, physical tour of the Volocopter. Um, you know, I just, it's interesting too, because like you have the, I mean, drones, Richard, you and I both have had a lot of experience with drones. The, you know, like the technology is incredible. It was when we were one of the first to get a permit to fly a drone in Saudi Arabia in like 2015, the, was it 15? Te- I think it was Holy 15 God. or 16, yeah. but the tech, that tech was amazing. I mean, it lands it where you take off, you go two miles away and it comes back. And so. You know, just make them bigger so we can fly in them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Back and forth, please. Yeah. Do <laughs> and Richards. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, number three uh, Aston Martin ties with Lucid for EV partnership. Aston Martin Lagonda Global Holdings, maker of the Aston Martin brand of brand of cars, is tying up with Lucid Group on electric vehicle vehicle technology, uniting the British car maker and Lucid, both backed by Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. According to reports, Aston Martin will pay $232 million in shares and cash to Lucid in exchange for battery electric powertrain components, the company said earlier this week. Yeah.
0: Lucid CEO Peter Rawlinson gave an interview to Reuters the day after this news came out. He said the deal really kicks off that wing of the Lucid Group's business. Do we ever want to make a twenty five thousand dollar car because that's what it's going to take to change the world? I'm not sure if we want to be in that business, but licensing our tech to a company that could do that makes more sense. So that was actually Richard and that was the quoted in our edition of the review yesterday. And that is, that gives you a lot of insight into Lucid just that and and what they just did with this tech transfer thing. It's like, okay, you know, we're, we're not really in the lower end business. We're making Lucids, which are, you know, long range and exceptional on the inside and, and wonderful cars. And then the technology players like Aston Martin and some of these other smaller car companies that don't have the capital to invest in developing their own ev tech you know can just you know license it so cool cool story and good for lucid their stock went up so you know that's cool
1: yeah i mean uh we've talked about it before the lucid and how much we love it but um and you know the saudis You know, Saudis obviously own better than sixty percent of of Lucid, but they're investing in the technology, and this is an application exactly what we've talked about. You know, we love the car, but the technology is 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 class leading as well. And it is interesting. I guess you have to take it for face value because because Rawlinson said, "All right, so so Saudis already own close to seventeen percent of Aston Martin. Part of this deal, Lucid gets close to four percent of Aston Martin in terms of you know a stake, uh, as well as." you know the 235 million 232 million in shares rather so that's 232 million in shares and in some cash but that, that amounts to about four percent rawlinson said that the PIF didn't play a role in this and so it's just interesting that aston martin looked about for technology decided lucid was league leading you know uh and so went with that, and apparently, you know, the PIF didn't play middleman. Uh, it, it's just interesting as Saudi Arabia, you know, spreads out, invests in this and that. You see all these uh, secondary and and knock-on relationships that grow. It's what happens when you build an ecosystem. It's just it's just very interesting to see it happen. And it certainly speaks to what we talk about uh, with Lucid is that it's their technology that really sets them apart. We love the the, the car, it's a beautiful design, but it's the technology that makes it, makes it uh, really attractive.
0: Richard Yella, number four. Oh, and we're
1: gonna go sports
0: here on out in the Simon Chadwick kind of vein. So this is good, I'm yeah. pumped. Um, <laughs> Conte joins Benzema. Benzema. Okay, why, don't, why can't I get that? Why, why I can't know I get what that it is right? You're Benzema. On own. <laughs> I know. At al tahad on a three-year deal, as Saudi Arabia entices another star player. There are a lot of them these days, Richard. They keep coming. Ngolo Kante won pretty much everything in European soccer. Now he's trying his luck in the lucrative Saudi league, where he'll have another France superstar for company. Kante completed his widely expected move to Saudi champion al tahad on a three-year deal Wednesday. After six years at Chelsea, Boohoo! a loss for Chelsea with his new club co- opening its doors to the 32 year old midfielder with a series of tweets containing the hashtag, ha- hashtag welcome box to box, referring to his hard running style of play.
1: <laughs> so the Saudis in this transfer season have been all the, you know, the gotten all the ink, you know, they're not all going there. But so what do we have so far? We have Benzema. I'm saying Benzema. I don't know if that's correct. Uh, he's in, he's at al Ittihad uh tante's joined him in Etihad. both about 100 mil per year u.s mm-hmm. dollars u.s mm-hmm. dollars Conte, i think is a three-year agreement benzema maybe three year two i think it may be two with an option but i'm not sure ruben, ne- ruben neves is going out halal uh Bali going out halal obviously Ronaldo's at a uh, nasser uh anderson taliska went to Al nasser in 2021 just got news that you lost your chelsea goalie and edward mendy Yes. Uh, but he just went to Al ahli for a three on three-year deal. Um, so Chelsea South, as we can call it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm sure they're in play for others. I mean, you know, I you know, I mean, it's interesting. So 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 far, when you look at that, you know, all these teams, Itihan, Al halal Nasser, and uh, Ahli, those are all four PIF teams. It's going to be interesting maybe if Shabab gets into it or some other ones that aren't PFI team, but that's what you want to see, you know, uh, everybody getting in on it. And, um, so fascinating stuff. It's, you know, it's just so much, so much top of, you know, uh, top of the fold stuff in football.
0: They're talking about doing a Saudi, uh, or a, a new deal for media rights yes. so that people can actually see this. I, uh, so we'll, yeah, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah
1: they hired IMG.
0: Oh, did uh, they? Okay, cool. Okay, yeah. so they've got somebody yeah to place it cuz people are going to yeah. want to watch now, you know. So how do you how would you watch the S the Saudi Pro League right now, Richard? Yeah, you know, like so they they they're going to get that going.
1: I think IMG did it for M, MLS or some other major other major major football league. Um but you know, it, speaking of which, it's 5 years ago. So You will go on a Saturday morning, whatever. How many Premier League games you can you see i mean i can you know i just have regular cable whatever uh i haven't cut the cord but this is what i get i, I can see premier league games three years ago they weren't around you didn't get to see them and now there's they're a thing yeah they um, come on at
0: a great time it's like saturday morning at like 11 a.m exactly here, which is great yeah uh
1: yeah you know i'm doing stuff or you know short you know projecting or whatever and you know have it on and can look at it but yeah, maybe they can do the same with you know this is this is a thing you know we're talking about it
0: yeah it's amazing um good good uh, for them i mean this it's, it's kind of it's mind-boggling so we'll see how it all goes toward the fall but i mean like it's a completely different league this coming year and they had ronaldo last year so he was really the trailblazer so
1: pretty cool yeah speaking of controversial sporting investments the framework Of the merger agreement between the pga tour and saudi-backed live golf says that a for-profit subsidiary of the u.s golfing body will be created to manage commercial investments and assets for all tours um this is according to reuters they they, now everybody's got a a a copy of the of the statement the pga tour will have a permanent controlling interest in the subsidiary's board of directors regardless of the saudi investment the framework set I'm going to finish this. The new company, according to the agreement, could pursue, quote, targeted mergers and acquisitions to globalize the sport, unquote, and may look to incorporate, quote, innovations from live, unquote, such as a team golf concept that the league has championed since it debuted last year.
0: Yeah, Richard, this isn't a done deal yet, you know, and so it's interesting. I I, I guess both of us have been a little surprised at how poorly received this the news leaking, the not leaking, but announced that they were going to merge, but there are still some hurdles to jump over. You've got problems in Europe. You've got the U.S. Justice Department. Congress wants to take a look at it. So we're not there yet. But what we got in this story, as you as you noted, is more information about what's about to happen. And I don't have much to add that would be new at this point. Um, but I think what's interesting here, just from what we you just talked about, is that this isn't saudi taking over the sport and making it like they want it this is them investing in a sport that doesn't have hasn't reached the financial maturity that it could and i think that's what you see here with this organization they're not looking to change everything um they're they're looking to own part of it so that they can financially benefit so at least that's what i've been trying to explain to people this is not about like an image change it's this is a pretty good investment
1: they think so yeah no, i don't I don't understand what the fuss is. I mean, basically, I do understand what the fuss is. Anybody, you know, anybody whose default position is to have nothing to do with Saudi Arabia because it's sports washing and it's a it's a country that would be rejected in all ways, uh, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable with. But and I'm not a lawyer. I don't know this. And as we know, it, it, you know, there's a lot of information to be had. There's still a lot of distance to be run. Um, it could change. It could falter. It could blow up. In looking at and this is again, I'm not an expert on this but in looking at what I see have seen from the you know reports and and commentary and 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 you know things like this this uh, plan a PGA should be delighted. Oh my goodness uh, you know and apparently they just the PGA just briefed the player reps in Detroit five hour meeting and they walked out I think you know apparently they walked out you know quite encouraged. And why not? I mean, it, my, here's my reading of this agreement. The Saudis essentially gave up LIV. The, you know, the the the, the decision to go forward or not in, on, on that tour is going to be PGA. They decide on that. It freezes any kind of marketing, any kind of uh, poaching, any kind of recruitment. So LIV is static right now for whatever it was. And now, obviously, if they, those players, live players who who opted for LIV can find a way back into the PGA, which that process will be will be made apparent at some point, but um, I suspect there'll be a path to do that. What's the point of LIV? So it, to me, you know, LIV basically said, okay, we're gonna give this up. And what I see, and I, th- I think, you know, w- literally what I see here is Saudi Arabia in return for setting up this new company, which is called NuCo, to pursue investment vehicle as an equal partner with your know, first option with PGA and DP world tour basically gave that up for the right to be a premier sponsor. And that means, so when we turn up golf on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but, but typically Saturday and Sunday, you know, a premier sponsor would be Cadillac and Rolex and, and KPMG and Pepsi. Uh, now you're going to add PIF to that. And they also get to have a marquee tournament, you know, uh, you know, essentially a PIF tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are people who are going to be completely offended and dismissive of that. No, no, you can't do that. But from the PGA perspective, we just got an investment partner. We just took a major competitor off the table. We still have a control over everything. Our tour, their tour, the dp tour essentially um and we got a boatload of investment i mean i how i, I so anyway again the the initial response is oh my god and, but i see these things like you know and the, the headlines live takes over golf what the heck are you reading what, what are you, are you talking at? about
0: yeah exactly and what and, are you looking at yeah i mean and you said it so well richard like you took a competitor off the table. What are these people going to do? Not watch golf because that one of that three ads they see before Rory McIlroy puts on 18 is for the PIF. They're not going to watch the tournament that takes place at the Royal Greens or at the new course or building in Kadia or in like what, I mean, you have to just push through this because people are going to be very negative about it because like you said at the beginning that they're just associating it with Saudi Arabia. It goes back to your one big thing. It's like, okay, it's 15 in the 19. It's like, OK, if you can, if you're able to get past that or understand it a little, or understand further. it, yeah, exactly. Then you're like, well, wait a minute. This makes sense for everybody. I mean, look at all the tennis players this week. They heard about the ATP tour with the PIF, potentially interested and every except for McEnroe, who's yeah. not actually a player anymore. They were like, whoa, sign me up. And he's a
1: curmudgeon to boot. I mean, he's going to dislike everything. I mean,
0: a total legend, too. They named a a camera after him in case there's a missed shot so they can't complain like he'd (laughs) like to. Um, You know, a great guy and everything. But he has his opinion, and that's fine. But the players were like, whoa, we will totally play in Saudi Arabia. Please, we're all about this. Um, And, Richard, you said that you're not a lawyer inside the walls of this house. I'm like Johnny Cochran. I'm like the best lawyer on talking to my <laughs> wife and kids, but I completely agree with you. There's a lot of complex legal conversations going on here. Cause it's a huge, like, if you think about it, a, a big deal legally, like you had all these players sign contracts with live. And in those contracts, there was some probably pretty harsh language before this merger happened. So it's going to take a little while for them to kind of work this out. And then you got the government as well. So um, I mean, yeah. Anyway, you made some really good points there about about that and just how much sense this makes. I mean, if you had Jay Monahan just trashing Live and then all of a sudden make a reversal, you kind of have to think that maybe, you know, he, he saw this deal as impossible to refuse. So
1: And it, it sounds like as they interact more and inform the players more, which they obviously didn't because you can't pull this off if it's if everybody knows about it. Um, it sounds like increasingly players are going, Wait, hey, I'm quite good with this. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Congress, of course, has to has to, you know, get its uh, shots in and take a review and hopefully it'll be fully informed and and nonpartisan and it'll make a good decision if it's, you know, if it's a monopoly or not. I don't see how it changes anything with PGA was. Um, But anyway, again, you know, on the face of it, it's a triumphant deal for PGA, if you ask me
0: agreed richard yellen number six and again we find ourselves complete with the episode unfortunately (laughs) um mashallah to the uh, mermaid on the sea the 2023 club world cup will take place in the saudi arabian city of jeddah which was actually announced uh earlier this year but fifa went to go visit jeddah to see how prep was going and then they made it official i guess was the news story but the tournament which will be played from december 12th through 22nd will be held in Saudi Arabia for the first time the 2023 edition of the club world cup will be the last of the current format an annual competition with seven teams which will be discontinued before its expansion to 32 teams uh and the first event for that will be held in 2025 in the United States
1: of course one year before we host the world cup here yeah so we threw this in because it was athletic, but also, so 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 for listeners who don't know this, and but I think it's kind of neat. So the the Club World Cup essentially is you take the winners of the Asian Football Champions League, you take the winners of the CAF, the Africa League, take the winners of the CONCACAF. <laughs> is that correct? <laughs>
0: nice. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. But that's that's <laughs>
1: North North and Central America and the Caribbean. You take the South American champions, the Oceania champions, European champions, and then you add where, the champion of the, whoever is hosting it. So, you know, this, it'll be the champion of the Saudi Premier League. And you put them in a competition. The Saudi, pre, you know, the, the the hosting champion plays Oceania to get you down to six, and then you play. Uh, it's just kind of cool. And it's and, uh, going to be expanded. They're going to take a year off, and then they're going to expand it in 2025. But we threw that in because uh you know saudi arabia is is looking to to convene everything you know let's host this obviously the asian you know the asian uh winter games are coming they've got the asian uh football cup championships coming you know they want to host everything they and, and and it's part of their uh efforts to build their eco their sports ecosystem and not only just investments but also you know building something that so if you host this you're going to that's going to be nice revenue people going to come they're going to stay in hotels they're going to spend money it's uh it's just part of their larger process so anyway we added this because it's a slightly different take on the other you know we had live uh and we had uh, this, the Saudi transfers. So this is a little different deal, but it's all in keeping with what they're trying to do and trying to build an attractive sporting environment that draws people, attracts people, raises profile, brings brand. And, you know, makes
0: their population healthier and is a quality of life issue. Richard, as we discussed with professor Simon and, and, and a healthcare issue, we talked about some of the health issues they have as a people. So getting them more and more into sport is key. I think Richard too, like just, I don't actually have that much to add. The one thing I will add is having watched very few games of the club world cup expanding from seven to 32 seems awesome. I mean like that seems way better. It's like when they did college football uh, playoffs and they had four and now they do eight. And then I think they're expanding it again, maybe soon. And I could have that wrong, but just, you know, you, the, the best uh, tournament in all of sporting, in my opinion, is March Madness because it's 62, 64 teams and a couple yeah. play-in games and it's just mayhem. And I think this will be good because I think there will be a lot of teams that come in at second, maybe in the EPL or, or however, they're, however they're gonna do it, that have a, a real chance to make waves in this tournament. So anyway, cool stuff and great for Jeddah and a great time to be playing there. The weather will be exceptional. Um, so, you know, yeah. that's, that's that's awesome.
1: I think that's a good, a good comparison. You're going to have Cinderella teams. You're going to have, you know, you know, lower ranked teams. You're going to pull in upset. How far can they go? It, you know, it, it's, it's more soccer, more football, rather more
0: soccer, more football, Richard, we will have a couple of different world cup of stadiums around us, right. We'll have Philly and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's DC I, definitely is not up yeah, to
1: snuffer. Yeah. Unfortunately, We may unfortunately. want to think about a road trip.
0: Yeah, let's do it, especially if the uh, Green Falcons are playing. They're the upset masters uh, having <laughs> taken down Argentina. That's so, true. They're going to um, have
1: some expectations, aren't they?
0: They sure are after all of this. Richard, wonderful episode. Nice to be back. Nice to see you as well. Um, so we will be, be back pleasure. next week with another full shebang. And thank another you great all guest. very much. Oh another goodness. great guest. Such good, such good content. So we appreciate all of you. And we will see you next week. See ya. See ya!